Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Kate Woda. I'm delighted to share a panel discussion from the 2019 Immuno-Oncology 360 Conference, also known as IO360, on the topic of IO partnering strategies in an increasingly complex environment. This session is led by Dr. Axel Hoos, Senior Vice President of Oncology R&D for GSK. Dr. Hoos is joined by Dr. Michael Barron of Pfizer Ventures, Dr. Maddie Garaya of VMS, Dr. Emmett Schmidt of Merck, and Dr. Anton Xavier of New York State Center for Biotechnology. The next IO360 program will take place February 26 through 28, 2020, at the Crown Plaza Times Square Hotel in New York City. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Okay. Hello, everybody. I think we're switching gears now and talk a bit about, you know, what, key, what glues the field together in terms of partnering and uh, drives a lot of progress by you know, bringing different forces together that can uh, produce progress in the space. So having said that, uh, I'd like to make sure that you know who's on stage and uh, who will contribute to this conversation. And I would ask just our panelists to briefly introduce themselves so you know, we can get started. So Emmett Schmidt, I lead a product development team called External Collaborations at uh, Merck. This is working? Yes. Okay. Mike Barron, Pfizer Ventures. Uh, within Pfizer, we have a venture capital fund that invests strategically uh, alongside business development, but our investments are aimed to be aligned with our R&D strategy. Anton Xavier, Assistant Director for Technology and Business Development at the New York State Center for Biotechnology. We de-risk early stage academic innovations through our CAT, um, our REACH NIH designation and our BARDA designation. And we also work with early stage companies that are New York centric toward various inflection points. So if there's New York State companies here that uh, require aid, uh, we're certainly out there to, to help you. Great. Good morning, everybody. This is Maddie Garaya. I work in uh, business development and search and evaluation function in Bristol-Myers Squibb. Uh, very happy to be here. Thank you for Axel and IO60 for inviting us. Okay, perfect. So uh, what I thought we start with uh, to give you a sense of you know the diversity of approaches that you can find in partnering and uh, striking collaborations and you see how diverse this panel is is to let uh, each of the panelists give you a brief summary of how do they approach partnering what is their uh, you know setup and methodology and how do they think about partnering strategically so uh, should we start with Merck Thanks, Axel, and I want to express my thanks as well. I forgot to for inviting us to participate in the panel um, and to the organizers. Um, it, perhaps a job description will be a first step at introducing this because I'm realizing that my job description kind of encompasses a lot of other people's things more broadly. So external collaborations is looking at things that will um, add value to the Keytruda label at some level or other at, at some point in the future. Um, and that starts with both a search and evaluation function wherein we look at new assets, new targets, new thought processes, largely those that come to us with a proposition, um, but then adding value on the distal end of the collaborations is the, those 
those companies that, uh, and those assets that we're able to promote into phase three, um, I'm proud to contribute to the bottom line at Merck with you know, a quantitative number of assets that have gone over into late stage development that's, um, I think, a, a remarkable reflection on our success. So I actually do everything along the whole way. Um, our team is involved in the search and evaluation, in the business negotiations and, and transactions, in the advising of the execution of the trials, and ultimately in the, the thought process around what's succeeding. Yep. So um, I guess at Pfizer, um, while I represent Pfizer Ventures, I could start a little bit more high level in terms of just broadly how we approach partnering. And I don't think it's really any different than how most big pharmas do it. You know, we have kind of such a big footprint that we have the uh, opportunity to be very flexible in the different ways that we can engage with partners. So I guess there's three kind of main kind of buckets, if you think of it, in, in ways that we go about partnering. Uh, first, I would say, is kind of on the earlier side, working uh, with academics or early biotech, as simple as you know, an MTA without any kind of uh, dollars associated with it, all the way through uh, collaborative research agreements. Uh, then I kind of think of the middle kind of approach more as um, your traditional business development, licensing, M&A, that kind of stuff. And then on the third end um, are kind of what we consider, at Pfizer at least, some of the more innovative models where we have like open innovation models for engaging with academia um, or even venture investing, um, which is what I represent. Uh, so within, within the venture group, kind of the way that we work is, um, you know, our venture investments, as I said earlier, have to be strategically aligned with um, our R&D strategy, right? We invest across five therapeutic areas that Pfizer is uh, interested in. Um, and so what, what does it mean to be strategically aligned? At the end of the day, like when the rubber meets the road, it means that the chief scientific officer that manages the research unit within Pfizer has to say that, um, you know, they're on board with this investment. And that's something that's very different than the way we used to operate about a year or so ago when it was kind of, um, uh, just kind of like a, you know, a, 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 I'd say a light kind of, um, not approval, but support. Now we need much more strong support um, from the research unit. And really what we're looking to do is we're looking to invest in companies that are um, companies that through our board participation, we can help guide them into a place where Pfizer can interact or form a licensing or acquisition kind of relationship within the next, you know, I'd say two to three years. We're really looking to drive pipeline impact through our venture investments, uh, not financial return. And so that's kind of where we are. Yeah, can I ask you a question on that? Yes. Uh, is this a more recent uh, uh, setup, or have you been doing this for a long time? Yeah, you it's, to, it's un to unfirewall R&D from your venture investments. Yeah, I would say it's a more recent setup, and. Um, if I could hog the mic for one more minute, just because I think it's interesting. Uh, I can give you a little brief history on how venture uh, investing has evolved at Pfizer. And so for the last, I'd say, uh, eight years or so, we had a venture group that reported up through finance, right, to the CFO. And so what does the CFO care about, right? You know, the, the fund has to make money. That was kind of the primary driver of, of, of why, we were, why we were operating in the venture space. Uh, about three years ago or so, we started a second fund uh, within the R&D group with, the, with the, uh, more of a strategic intent to enable our CSOs to invest in areas that they weren't ready to use their own budget to kind of uh, you know, create a, an internal effort on. 
And then last year, uh, as many people know, Pfizer decided to uh, get out of research in uh, neuroscience. But the board decided that it would be uh, favorable for us to you know, stay plugged into the community uh, through venture investing. And so we created a third arm uh, to support neuroscience investment. And then organizationally, we combined all three into one fund. And, um, and, and when, when we did that, kind of the overall shift changed that pretty much all our investments need to be strategically aligned. We can go outside of it if we can make a strong argument, but for the most part, um, you know, there's a strong push now that our investments should be things that enable our pipeline the sooner the better. So. And I, I personally consider this a very good trend. You can do a lot more this way, strategically. Yep. Yep. And you know, many farmers have uh, traditionally kept the two things separate, where venture is really more for financial returns than for strategic alignment with R&D. And I've seen this trend now uh, in different places. It includes GSK as well. We have also unfirewalled the two components. So thank you. All right, so uh, coming from the more um, academic early stage angle, so uh, when we uh, go about um, forming partnerships with industry or even uh, exiting, uh, we take a slightly different approach. Uh, we have three pillars at uh, the Center for Biotechnology that we are designated under through the state and federal government. Uh, we are a CAT designator, so a, a designation of a CAT. Uh, what that means is we're a center for advanced technology where we can fund um, companies, and early stage companies um, in the New York area to, to move to the various next inflection points. We are a reach hub, which is an NIH designation, which allows us to fund uh, very, very early stage academic technologies um, to a uh, point of uh, pharma interest. Again, it's going to be fairly early for pharma, but we bring, bring in pharma early through our executive uh, review boards. So uh, we're, we're always engaging with pharma at that level. Uh, we're also designated as an accelerator for BARDA, that's the Biomedical Advanced Research and uh, Development Authority, around sepsis. Now, sepsis, slightly out of the field of IO, but it actually isn't. There's a, there's a impact in sepsis. Uh, there's, a, there's a facet of immunosuppression in sepsis, and, and it's been shown that um, certain uh, checkpoint inhibitors may actually work in, in that field. So, um, so those are our three pillars that we partner with, with, um, with e uh, external ventures on. And, and certainly from the uh, partnering aspect, we bring them in early through our executive review boards. So uh, when we do have um, early stage academic uh, technologies, we allow the, uh, the pharma and the VCs of the world to, to re review them at that early stage, and then we fund them um, at that early stage to bring them to inflection points, and we always engage um, pharma as we move um, the technologies forward. Uh, one thing that we have to be very careful about is, is how far do we follow or align with pharma's strategy. Um, so coming from academia now, um, I used to work in large pharma from a buy side. Now I'm on the sell 
side. I have to be very careful as to uh, farmer strategy because that can change. Uh, so for us, uh, we see a lot of ventures that may not necessarily be aligned with farmers' strategy. So one of our impacts is an economic impact. We may need to create a company independent of farmer involvement and, and move that to the clinic. That's a much more challenging approach, but certainly has an economic um, uh, development aspect in the state. Uh, but uh, we have to uh, just to just to um, actually just uh, really hone in on that. We have to be wary of of strategy and and be as independent as we can, while still taking into account what what farmer are doing. Great uh, and Bristol Myers Squibb, I think the uh, business development strategy is very similar to what you've already heard from a big pharma perspective before. But particularly in search and valuation, we we have sort of uh, three uh, three um, disease areas, oncology uh, being one of them, and also cardiovascular immunoscience that we focus on. And the remit of search and evaluation is very much focused on um, sort of reactive approaches, so folks who want to partner with us um, based on our current pipeline, our current agents. So that's something uh, very similar to, I believe, the clinical collaboration team that Emmett focused uh, on. But we also have a reactive approach uh, where we have identified key gaps uh, that we see in our current portfolio based on the trends uh, that are happening within the broader oncology, uh, where our remit is more kind of looking for that next asset that can potentially fill that gap. Um, so it's a really a partnership between the reactive, um, proactive approach um, that we go after um, to really the ultimate bottom line is to really augment and diversify our um, internal portfolio. Okay, as you can hear, uh, it's a good spectrum here. Some similarities, some big differences that actually could play nicely together in a complex ecosystem that we find ourselves in. Now, having said that, since our topic is I.O., and we're placing that in the larger oncology context, and I.O. is by now coming of age, you know, I would consider the launch year 2011 when the Pilimumab came to life, and since that time, we have seen an enormous growth in this space. And as we heard earlier, it's about uh, two-thirds of the investment in oncology is actually in I.O. So it's quite a substantial thing. Uh, but it, it raises the obvious question, uh, whenever you have so much attention in one area, uh, there is a bubble around it. The question is how much of it is bubble, how much of it is substance? And uh, so my question to you is, do you feel the honeymoon period for I.O. is over? Or is this, uh, you know, rosy picture that many people have for it is still ongoing and therefore things will be just more favorably viewed if they can, can be called I.O.? How do you see that as we enter, you know, the year 2019 and, and going forward? So I guess I get first shot. Um, first, I think there's a false dichotomy going on here, um, the I.O. versus non-I.O. Um, I, I think that's leading to, to false assumptions. Th there are plenty of agents that were purported to not be I.O., quote-unquote, that are working just fundamentally in combination with a checkpoint inhibitor, just like an I.O. agent. I'll reference the success with non-small cell lung cancer chemotherapy, which is being followed shortly thereon, thereupon by the same general premise. 
So if we continue with this false dichotomy, I think we're going <laughs> to just miss a lot of stuff that's happening broadly across the field. Uh, I have a data point that I can actually answer this on that I've done. Um, if you look at the objective response rates of all the combination trials that have come, back, come out in the public domain and just do a scattergram to see whether the overall response rates in those combinations are increasing, decreasing, plateauing, or whatever, at least to give yourself a trend line, the answer is they, they just look the same as they were five years ago, that they're broadly scattered over a broad normal distribution suggesting that actually we're not very predictive of what's gonna work until we get it into the clinic. Um, and we continue to see emerging good targets uh, as rapidly as we did earlier. So where that, where that plateaus, nobody knows. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I would also um, make a few of my own comments. I guess um, both scientifically and financially, uh, I would say uh, we're not at the end of the bubble. Um, we may be in the bubble, but we're not at the end of the bubble. Scientifically, I don't think we're at a bubble at all. Um, if you look at kind of the various different mechanisms that are, well, first of all, if you look at, yeah, if you look at the various different mechanisms that are in play in the clinic, um, there's definitely, there's, it doesn't appear that there's uh, curative opportunities. So there's still work to be done. Um, furthermore, you know, at, at Pfizer, at least on the from the research uh, perspective, one thing that we've realized is, um, you know, it, it you don't, kind of, it may not be the best use of resources to invest in programs where you're not in the first wave of a particular mechanism, right? Uh, you don't get a lot of credit from um, the analysts and it's probably not the best, uh, you know, move either for, for patients, right? If there's already uh, a few companies that are working in that space. So uh, novel biology is really a big focus for us at Pfizer, not just within immuno-oncology, but across all our therapeutic areas. Uh, there's a big push to really be in, in the first wave in, in what we work on. And again, this may not reflect uh, our clinical pipeline now. It's more on the research side where this is a, a big focus when we prioritize our portfolio. And so uh, I, I know we're not the only pharma company that's done this, but we, we, I can speak for Pfizer. We have a big effort on building internal kind of novel target generating capabilities uh, using genetics, functional genomics, and trying to work with external partners as well. So from that perspective, I think the scientific perspective, I think that you know, we're not in a bubble at all. And I think that um, there's still a lot of learning that needs to be done to you know, crack the, the full uh, story here on, on immuno-oncology. Um, and then on the financial side, just in terms of deal flow, what we're seeing in the venture group, um, you know, there's a lot of chatter that it's a bubble. And, uh, you know, within the financial community, there's concern for, you know, earlier private companies that the IPO window could be closing soon. Um, but, you know, we're just not seeing it. I mean, we're still seeing deals, uh, preclinical companies worth $100 million. Um, and so, you know, we saw even earlier this morning some of the deal flow examples, you know, huge upfront payments uh, and, and oncology, immuno-oncology in particular, seems to be where a lot of the deal flow is. But if you look at how much kind of those upfronts are and even the equity investments in the immuno-oncology space, uh, it's definitely, you know, a step up from other therapeutic areas for the most part. So, uh, you know, I think there's some concern just because the numbers are getting so big on the financial side, but I wouldn't I haven't seen any sign that, you know, things are really changing on the financial side, so. Thank you. Uh, so I actually love this question. Um, so, and, and I've got a lot of stuff to say around it, but I'll, I'll keep it tame. Um, so uh, 
is the honeymoon period over? Uh, so um, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in, the, uh, in the Hanahan and Weinberg's um, hallmarks of cancer and the hallmarks of cancer next generation uh, papers. Um, I believe that IO is one aspect of, of cancer itself, but it shouldn't be anchored to IO. So uh, when you see CTLA-4 PD-1 being the anchor to all of the other uh, drugs out there, even non-IO drugs, I think that's a slight mistake. I think it should be more evened out. Speaking to our clinicians at our various hospital sites, uh, they believe that uh, IO is in, in somewhat of a honeymoon period and it's, and it's coming to an end. Um, that makes me somewhat relieved. Um, that's a little bit controversial to say at an IO conference, uh, but... Um, what it means for me is that I can now exit some of uh, the ventures that are non-IO that have um, uh, monotherapy benefits uh, in a preclinical world. Again, preclinical doesn't necessarily translate to clinical, and certainly there may be some aspects to combine with with, with um, other IO drugs, but also with non-IO drugs. So I could combine with non-IO and non-IO and probably get a, a better clinical benefit. So uh, I'm, I'm glad to see that. And, and um, I, I can give an example of something that's in this field. Let's imagine um, if we take an asset that's already doing very well, and this is one of, uh, one of GSK's assets, uh, uh, BCMA ADC. Right, uh, so um, let's imagine um, I had an early stage preclinical asset that was BCMA ADC. Uh, we already know how, how successful that's been uh, moving forward along with, with GSK, um, but everyone else is in IO. Um, would I be able to move that preclinical asset uh, forward? And I would say no, but. Um, but we're seeing that there's a lot of um, clinical benefit of having a BCMA ADC versus a CAR T ADC, and uh, and so not only on cost but also uh, or cost um, um, uh, efficacy differential. So um, I would like to see more of a de-anchoring um, of IO and a more evenly spread um, attack on cancer through the hallmarks of cancer. It's always fun to answer the question last. Uh, so I, I honestly struggled with the question uh, because to me, it all boiled down to uh, what are we all here for, right? We're, we're really trying to find um, that unmet need and address it. As cliche as that sounds, um, th that's what we're, that's why we all go to work. That's why we all do what we do. Yes, we, we all have a bottom line to produce, but at the, at the center of it, it's the unmet need, it, it's the cancer, and we're really trying to hope that more patients can benefit from more medicines in the near future. Um, and from that perspective, I think the, whole, the honeymoon period for IO is not over. Honeymoon period for chemotherapy is not over. Honeymoon period for targeted oncology is not over because we still have a lot of work to do. Um, it, it's not that why are we investing so much in IO space today. It, it's because there's immune system is 
the most sophisticated system in, in a human body. And we really don't understand a lot of it, the innate immune system, how the myeloid compartment could potentially uh, help us support the uh, combination partners with the current PD-1 CTLA-4. That is still an unknown question. And until we answer that and fully, um, in other words, turn that stone around and come up with no answer, I think that's when we can actually say that there's not lot we can do. Until then, I think there's a lot of work to do, both from a scientific and clinical perspective, to really address that on men need. See, uh, we have lots of different opinions on this topic, obviously. Uh, I'm adding mine now. Uh, I actually think the honeymoon period is over. If we, you know, if we define honeymoon as the initial wave of excitement that established something completely new that many people thought for years cannot work, I think that initial uh, period is over. I think IO now and all its new modalities are becoming part of you know mainstream. They're considered like everything else. That goes to your point of you know the hallmarks of cancer. They contain many components. Some are classic IO, some are not. But they all have to play together and to deliver the patient benefit we're looking for. It is a matter of integration. And I think literally that honeymoon is over. It's part of the, of the standard now. It has to be. So having said that, uh, let's look uh, towards, uh, you know, where is this actually going and where are the interests uh, from a partnering perspective in this space and f among us uh, when it comes to, you know, looking beyond the checkpoint uh, inhibitor space. PD-1... Uh, and PDL1 blocking antibodies have been, you know, mostly the value drivers for the space so far. Despite uh, all the new mechanisms that are being explored and all the research that's done, most of the value comes still from that one class. And um, even if you include the CAR Ts into this picture, they haven't amortized yet. There have been major investments made. But they have not yet amortized. So what that means is we just saw a write-off of more than 800 million uh, because the acquisition was so expensive that this item, if you take it off the portfolio, it's a massive write-off, right? So the BCMA uh, CAR-T from Gilead has had, uh, just signifies that there is a lot more to be done before this will amortize. And I'm convinced it will. It just, you know... Um, requires us that we're also looking for making business sense that we look at this carefully. So my question to you is, if we look beyond checkpoint inhibitors, where do you see the next value wave lying? Start with Maddie, or why not? Um. I, I think that we're still exploring that next wave, um, whether it's IO um, plus IO combinations, whether it's IO plus, um, you know, traditional chemo combinations, whether it's IO plus targeted oncology or kind of diversifying the hallmarks of cancer comment that came um it, it, it's a bit unknown, and I think that the, a lot of data generation is currently ongoing. This will potentially guide uh, where the biggest next investment needs to be. Um, I think what Axel said is, is critical to the point that um, there is a lot more happening that still needs to be 
um, amortized, specifically the card therapies and kind of how that gets successful in hematology space and what's the potential of us bringing that to the solid tumor side. I think that that, that could be the next potential um, opportunity for us. Um, it just we have seen very limited data thus far in that space, so there'll be a lot more to come um, um, and, and really watch and learn. Um, but the, um, I would think it, it, it's a lot of questions um, than answers at this point, but I'm confident that we'll, we'll, we'll have something uh, hopefully in the next couple of years. Right, yes. So um, I can give the generic answer, which will make everyone yawn, which is something like synthetic lethality and microbiome. Um, just use buzzwords like that for the next five minutes, but I'm not going to do that. Um, so from, from, the, um, from the academic angle, um, we are tumor agnostic or target agnostic and we can be like that because we have very significant connections to clinicians more so than than you see in in pharma uh, we work closely with clinicians and so from that we know what drugs are being prescribed to patients um, we can develop uh, protocols um, to find what happens at resistance what are the new markers that are popping up and uh, from those markers, doesn't matter if it's I.O. or non-I.O., um, can those markers then be developed into a, a, a small molecule or a large molecule? And then can we further partner that through our corporate research-sponsored programs uh, with um, interest, interested parties like, like Pfizer, for example? Uh, example would be uh, enzalutamide. Um, enzalutamide resistance. Um, is there uh, new markers from that? We have uh, clinicians in a space that are prescribing this drug and, and can get um, not only circulating tumor cells, but also uh, biopsies or, uh, post-resistance. And then uh, you can go through a drug discovery process, a drug uh, validation process, uh, and a development process funded by us, we don't have to be in the I.O. space. Uh, it'll be nice, but it, really speaking, as long as it's um, bringing value to, to pharma um, and, and we have an exit, that's certainly of, of interest to us. Okay, yeah. That's an interesting point around kind of precision medicine approach. I think that's, that's one of the kind of next frontiers. Um, I'm going to say some of the yawn opening ones more because, um, you know, if you're interested, if, if there's anyone in the audience that's working in that space, uh, Pfizer and myself specifically is interested to talk to you. So then maybe it's not so, uh, so much of a yawner if there's a path forward. But um, yeah, I mean, f first, I would say that, um, uh, you know, a lot of the, the combination hypotheses are starting to kind of play out in the clinic. And I think there's a lot of good scientific rationale around why certain combinations should work and if they're going to synergize. And it's going to be really interesting as those start to read out uh, more so over the next few years. And I'm not only t just talking about like doublets, but as we move into triplets and maybe even beyond that. Um, but if I had to say specifically kind of three areas that, that I think where the next kind of anchor IO asset would come from, uh, I think conquering kind of the innate immune system is going to be one place um, and, and the kind of dual play between the innate and adaptive immune response and how we can modulate that. Uh, that would be one. I think cytokines are, um, there's already probably some good um, 
not probably there there is already some good progress in that area but i i see that as kind of another kind of next frontier we're going to see more um different approaches on how to kind of mask and deliver cytokines safely in in combination and then um and then as you mentioned also uh, the DNA damage response. Uh, while it's not pure IO, um, you know, in a tumor microenvironment where you have uh, rapid kind of cell division, uh, it just seems like there's going to be good synergies there with IO agents. So those are my three. So Axel, the answer is plastics. <laughs> Thank you for those of you who shared the love of that movie with me. <laughs> So like any good politician, I'm going to change the nature of the question to answer the question I'd like to answer, <laughs> which is okay. Um, in a world in which uh, none of us on this stage, nor probably any of you in the audience, have a crystal ball, what may matter more is what is the process. Um, so, And this probably will help those of you who are interested in interacting with us at Merck to, to understand a process by which you can filter through all of this. Um, and it's, uh, my favorite analogy is an old Greek myth, the, the fox and the hedgehog. Um, it's an investment analogy, it's a philosophical analogy, you know, which, which does better, the fox or the hedgehog? Well, there's examples of both. You know, it, it is the hedgehogs of the world that make Amazon, and it is the foxes of the world that make uh, the kind of investments we all do to be able to retire. And a little bit of both of those kinds of thinking is probably what I aspire to and our team aspires to under the direction of the leadership at Merck, which is you're going to need to do a little bit of both. Um, you know, a, a bit of, of fox thinking and watching the field is rewarded at this point because if you look across the 204-ish trials that have read out combination responses and efficacies, there are successes across any type of these categories that were just briefly alluded to. There are successes across innate immunity, microenvironment, adaptive immunity, et cetera. So a devotion to any one of those particular characteristics is putting more of your assets into one basket than you may want to do if you have the opportunity to be broad, as broad as, as perhaps a Merck or a Pfizer or a Bristol can be. Um, and yet, on the other hand, you know, you, uh, we, we, I think we all are astounded that we went from a CTLA-4 to a PD-1 in, in you know, as short a time as it was. So maybe we're all looking for the next PD-1. And maybe the question about what the plateau is, is have we seen the next PD-1? Um, I, I won't try to answer that because we have our own answer that you can probably guess what we think at Merck. But uh, you know, from the standpoint of how do we find that golden golden rainbow, the golden dot at the end of the rainbow, it's going to be a mixture of those two approaches. Okay, yeah, very good answers. You know, uh, I, I look at this from a very uh, focused perspective. You know, there are certain things that we have initiated that have already been successful, and we need to build on that. So that is, you know, the search for the next PD-1 is somewhat uh, implying this. So what I'm searching right now is to go from immune, immune checkpoint antagonists to agonists. That's just the next thing that needs to be solved. And we have not solved it yet, but we have all the tools to do so. Uh, then looking for combinations that uh, use, you know, the one thing that we know works, which is doing an insult to the tumor, 
doing some damage, allowing the immune system to deal with that damage, and then enhance the immune response that results. It's a very simple way of saying it. There are many combinations that can come from that, but we have all learned chemo plus IO works together. That wasn't necessarily something uh, everybody had predicted. So that just stands for this concept. And then, of course, the cell and gene therapy story has become such an exciting thing. If you're at the beginning of the engineering story of making the best possible cells, and I think the next frontier is dealing with T-cell exhaustion and uh, treating solid tumors, because that will amortize the cell therapy field. If you make that happen, you go from small disease to large disease. You, uh, if you carry large benefit into solid tumors to cell therapy, we will amortize the cell therapy story. Even if that is a few steps away, uh, the technology again for that is at hand, and it's a matter of you know using it right. So that, those are my you know little uh, ideas of where I would look next. Of course, there is a lot more that can be done. So having said that, I think we have time for one more round of questions, and there may be a few questions from the audience at the end. So uh, you know, taking that direction that we just spoke about and translating it into a partnering activity. What is your specific strategic approach to leverage the knowledge that we have now? How do you translate that into a partnering strategy? And start with Maddie again. Sure. Um, I think it really, it's, so at, at Bristol-Myers-Squibb, our strategy is uh, one size does not fit all. Um, so it really depends on the opportunity that comes through either from a reactive or a proactive channel. Um, in other words, is it just a you know, plain and simple clinical collaboration where uh, we get the drug or the company gives us the drug and we conduct some data or generate some data to really uh, conduct some early research? Or even earlier, it's, it's a um, MTA. Um, or if it, it is a much developed, there is a baseline of very sound preclinical biological rationale. Um, and in the true oncology sense, we're ready to kind of take it all the way through once we have established the safety of the drug or the combination. Um, then the level of excitement and the level of investment becomes bigger. So it's a balance of sort of our um, belief in the mechanism and the biology of the molecule or the asset or the company in interest, um, and, and then the risk-taking that our company is willing to take. And I, I, I think it also, it balances out if we have higher belief, then the company is willing to take a higher risk for that matter. Um, so it is a range of partnerships, and I think that's added to the complexity that we see in the title of the panel today. Um, but it also helps big pharma kind of uh, put in multiple investments and multiple opportunities to really kind of expedite the data generation rather than doing a big deal um, on one asset and one mechanism. We're able to sort of spread the wealth, if you may, into multiple assets to kind of produce the multiple shots on goal. Um, and I, I do think that the strategy from Bristol-Myers Squibb has been the multiple shots on goal because of too many unknowns that we've discussed throughout the panel. But if the belief is uh, very high from our discovery to early clinical, um, and there is a solid proof of concept, then it, it, it warrants for a larger partnership, um, a strategic partnership or COCO or a full in licensing. And, and I think pharma is becoming more and more innovative um, 
in types of partnerships we do, and hopefully we'll continue that, um, partnering with big pharma, partnering with smaller companies, partnering with venture pharma, I think that is the future. Uh, and it's gonna be complex, and we have to be, be comfortable with that complexity, because that's the only way innovation's really gonna happen. Oh, yeah, great. Um, so um, uh, in terms of partnering, I do want to address one thing that Axel made was an excellent point around um, um, activating T cells um, and, and agonists. Uh, so if you start looking at TIGIT, uh, OX40, um, 41BB, Vista um, as, as other targets. Uh, my, my issue, and I'm going to stress this again before I talk about partnering, is IO, if you really want to, if you want to turn everything in immunology in terms of, of cancer, you really got to think of cancer as a tumor rejection model or a organ rejection model, which it is not. Um, but from the partnering angle, uh, certainly that's where we have some sticking points. Um, since we are tumor agnostic and, and target agnostic, um, it, uh, the difficulty in, in partnering with large pharma outside of IO or IO combinations um, is, is, is difficult. So, so we are reaching these kinds of boundaries for, for our assets uh, in terms of exits and forcing them into early stage companies and, and putting them into, in, into landing patterns. Certainly, um, uh, from our partnering strategy, we, we leverage our clinicians a lot because of their, um, um, their knowledge in the field and their, um, their understanding of what's being prescribed from the immuno-oncology sense and also from the non-IO sense. And so forming partnerships with clinicians and farmers is, is our key for, for, for moving, um, moving the needle on, on, on early stage drug development. Yep, I'll be quick. Uh, so just to give some perspective on actually what Pfizer plans to do in the near term as far as business development strategy, um, what direction we're pointing the cannon in, I guess, for 2019, 2020. Uh, certainly the main, main focus, and this is across all business development at Pfizer, not the venture group, is on uh, clinical stage assets. Um, so that's kind of where senior management is guiding us. If you've heard kind of comments um, that have been made publicly, um, you know, that's kind of what our, our leadership is thinking. As I mentioned earlier, we're interested in novel biology uh, very much on the, on the research side. And I'll just make one last comment just because it, it's helpful for people that are um, thinking to partner with Pfizer, especially in, in the oncology space where we just see kind of like an explosion of novel modalities. Um, we've become a bit more conservative in uh, our approach to how we evaluate uh, modalities. You may have seen, you know, Pfizer has um, got out of the CAR-T space. We, re we exited the ADC space. And, you know, really we've, we made big investments in those areas uh, that kind of, um, you know, made us think moving forward, we're going to be a little bit more cautious, maybe work with one partner and, and see how it goes and then scale up. And, and, and if you look at what we've done in gene therapy, that's kind of a good example of what we're looking to replicate as we move into novel modalities where we work with a single partner, get some proof in humans that it's kind of uh, going to work, and then we kind of go in big. So. Um, so I'll reveal perhaps some of the leopard spots by alluding to Immanuel Kant as a business strategy. So he has described something called the categorical imperative, 
which all the rest of us understand to be the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So this is a complex environment. Um, you know, we are both partnered with Pfizer and competing with Pfizer. Um, probably the only company we're not partnered with is sitting at the very left hand end here for obvious reasons. Um, and likewise, uh, you know, you can see that there is a matrix going on here where the partnerships are too complex to really understand them. So what are my responsibilities? What is my team's responsibilities? Well, first and foremost, being employed by Merck and company, it's to the Keytruda label. So the Keytruda label now, I think, is, a, you know, the value of that is beyond compare in, in pharma. So, you know, when we talk together, um, that's going to be part of the thinking that's happening on, on the side of uh, the table. What I find delightful in my job description now, um, which, you know, I've only been in the industry for, for eight years, um, having come from a, a lifetime in academics, is that I really do get to wake up every morning and try and look at this from what it looks like on your side of the table if you're coming to us to partner. Um, you know, I, I want to know what the data are. I, I, it, I'm not going to come at this as, uh, as an assumption that plastics is the answer because I don't think I'm that smart. Um, uh, and, I, you know, I, I, I think that we can together look at the data. And then the last element of how we can be aspirationally, Maddie already alluded to, you know, we're, we're all on this table and on this forum for the exact same reason. The unmet medical need opportunity now here is a cliche and it is what it's all about. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the fact that the PD-1 checkpoint inhibitors, you know, have such a, a breadth and depth of activity and they're still under 50% of every patient category says, indeed, there is nothing but forward progress to be made if we work together. So this is a very nice uh, segue into a, into a closing statement because we are now uh, approaching the end of our time. So, uh, you know, since I.O. began... If I again count from 2011, the partnering activities in the space under exactly the premise that you just laid out has uh, increased dramatically. It's a many-fold increase. Uh, you know, we've been as an industry very competitive, very siloed, uh, very duplicative in so many ways over so many years. I'm not saying we're not duplicative now. That one has not changed yet but we have work, started working together in a very different way than before. And I'm actually very happy that is the case. It, it does in, uh, uh, accelerate progress. And you know, you're right, you're partnered with almost anybody, with one exception. And uh, you know, this is what it needs to be. It all depends on the setting that you have and the contribution you can make to the ecosystem. And that is your unique contribution. Ours is slightly different, but it all connects. So with that said, uh, you know, I've received the question, what is the GSK uh, uh, partnering strategy or the, even the oncology strategy? So I will tell you that uh, and then uh, I think we'll close. So, um, you know, we have transformed GSK oncology from an organization that was initially starting with Me Too programs to really get a foot in the door in a company that had not been in oncology before. You know, when we started with uh, lapatinib uh, following Herceptin, that's a me too. It had its uh, justification, it has helped patients, but it has always remained a small program. And there are many others that have followed that. Then there was the Novartis transaction that many of you are familiar with, where we uh, sold 
marketed products from our oncology portfolio to Novartis, but retained the R&D pipeline. And that was our turning point uh, to innovation. The entire pipeline that exists today is innovation with the attempt to produce transformational medicines. So go away from small incremental benefits as we have seen in oncology for so many years and really rigorously and with discipline only pursue the programs that can produce big effects. It's easy said because you will find a, a, a not so easy done. You will find a lot of programs that will be incremental. They're still financially valuable, but they're not offering the benefit we're looking for. So it's, it's hard to do. You know, uh, when my new head of R&D joined GSK about a year ago, he laid out the premise that focus uh, needs to be uh, enhanced for R&D. You cannot do too many things and then double down on those that matter. And we discontinued more than half of the programs in the, in the R&D portfolio. The more than 80 programs were stopped over the course of about a year. And we have made oncology now an R&D focus. And the investments that we're making currently are in four different focus areas. IO is one of them. Epigenetics is another. We spun out cell and gene therapy because it's such a unique thing, it needs its own attention. And we then finally, uh, with the Tesaro acquisition that recently happened, uh, are entering genetic medicine or synthetic lethality because that is a unique thing that also needs its own attention. Now, if you look at that, at each of these, in each of these four areas, the idea is to innovate and drive the next frontier. So in I.O., and again, these are choices, these are bets that you place, and hopefully smart bets. The focus is on checkpoint agonists as a first wave, and then uh, making insult to the tumor and combining. The BCMA program goes in that category. It's not an IO asset per se, but it induces immunogenic cell death, and is very synergistic with IO uh, agents. That's why we partnered with Merck to do PD-1 combinations, for example. Uh, so, you know, these things follow a strategy. And if we do a deal, the deal needs to fit that strategy. And there is, you know, no specific um, um, prescription for what kind of deal would make sense. It just needs to follow the science. So, and if you look at cell therapy, we uh, actually did a deal with Adaptimmune. We acquired a program, the first that works in solid tumors as a cell therapy, using TCRs instead of CARs. And uh, we were going to go pivotal with that program uh, in the first indication towards the end of this year. So that's, again, driving the next frontier. And I think T-cell exhaustion and some other things will have to will play a role here. And uh, then epigenetics is a whole new area. There is no marketed product yet. But there's a lot of, um, you know, interesting biology that we're exploring with clinical assets. So if you look at the totality of this story, with the partnering activities that we have, biotech, pharma, and academia, we have grown the oncology portfolio from eight assets in the clinic last July to 16 assets in the clinic today, four of which are in, in pivotal programs. And this will go fairly quickly we don't have a, we have one marketed product now with the PARP inhibitor that came from Tesaro, uh, but expect there will be uh, several new drugs on the market relatively soon. Then we basically have returned 
from uh, you know selling the marketed products to Novartis to be back a commercial oncology company, uh, fully focused on innovation. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. The 2020 IO360 program will take place February 26th through 28th at the Crown Plaza Times Square Hotel in New York City. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Thanks for listening.